Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 140 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. If you want to be inspired, I want you to listen to this episode today because Tiffany really is an inspiring grieving mom if I have ever heard one. And I know that you will be so inspired by listening to her and by listening to Braden's story because it's really her son Braden who empowered her to be the inspiring woman that she is today. So if you want to follow her on social media, listen all the way to the end. But just to give you a little bit of information now, she is at Tiffany Agnew Inspires. So you can look her up on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Tiffany Agnew Inspires. And for now, sit back and enjoy listening to Tiffany, Braden's mom. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for coming on the Always Andy's Mom podcast and joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to share Braden with the world. Oh, and I'm excited to help you do that. Yeah, why don't we start out by just talking about Braden? Tell us all about him. Braden was a funny kid, typical teenager, loved video games, like serious passion for video games. Okay. Dreamed of being um, a YouTube video gamer. He even has a YouTube channel with a few videos. He was only just getting started, but he was he was just your typical kid. What video games did he like? He was really into both PlayStation and computer games and like okay. playing the ones that you could play online. So a mm-hmm. lot of like first shooter games. He liked to connect with other people online. It was funny when when he actually got sick and was like home from school and unable to go, like he started having these friends in different time zones <laughs> because his oh, yeah? <laughs> friends were at school. So he needed people to, to connect with and play his video games online with. So yeah, he started having friends in a couple different time zones. Oh, that is really funny. <laughs> it, you know, it is the way it is sometimes, though. I talked to that woman in Australia a few months ago, and she's got support groups that she does these virtual support groups, and many of them are in the United States and Canada, because then she can do it in the morning, and then it's evening time after work for the people who attend. So I guess it kind of makes me think of that. Like, if you get the time zones right, you can really do some pretty cool things. So. Yeah. Absolutely. And I say that when he got sick, like if you came to our house and you didn't see him, you would never know that he actually had anything wrong with him. If you just heard him upstairs, like I I always say arguing with strangers on the internet, because he'd be like (laughs) playing his online video games, right? Uh huh. That you'd never know he was sick, like, because the illness that he had actually required him 
to need full-time oxygen support. So if you saw him, you'd see the oxygen, the oxygen right. mask for sure. But when he was sitting down, like he felt pretty okay. Right. So if you heard him up there playing, you'd never even know anything was wrong with them. He actually, he played video games well into the night, the night before he went for his surgery, he, he had PlayStation set up right in the hospital room and played okay. into the wee hours of the night with his friends online. So is he your oldest or where does he fall for you? He is actually my only child. Oh, he's your only yeah. oldest and, and only. only. Yeah. yeah. Well, very good. So tell me about him a little bit growing up. So he loved video games as a teenager. What was he like as a little one? He also loved video games when he was little. He got into them quite young, but he actually also had a mad love for hockey. So when uh-huh. most kids were like watching like those like terrible cartoons that are made for the real, real little ones, he yeah. was actually into the Mighty Ducks movies. Oh, really? Like so into the Mighty Ducks movies. It didn't even make sense the age that he was. So his first word before mom or dad was hockey. Wow. That is really funny. Hockey. And he used to pronounce it like hockey, hockey. (laughs) So a lot of people don't know this about him, but he actually had his first life-threatening illness when he was seven. Mm -hmm. So he had an illness that caused him to go into septic shock. And he ended up in the hospital in Toronto at the sick kids hospital. And they had come around to the rooms. They had the maple leaves were at the hospital. They were going into children's rooms. They were like giving them merch, like hats and t-shirts. Brayden refused to meet them (laughs) because he had a very strong dislike for the maple leaves. And he didn't want other people to think that he liked them. (laughs) So at seven years old, he refused to meet the maple leaves. Oh, that's funny. So what was his team? His team was the Mighty Ducks because of the movies. Oh, so okay. Just the Mighty he was actually Ducks. a huge fan of the Ducks. And actually, after that illness that he had when he was seven, he ended up getting a wish from the Children's Wish Foundation, which we ended uh-huh. up going on like a few years later because he had like a lot of different stuff he had to work through. And part of that was we went to see a Ducks game in California. Yeah, I'm thinking, you're from New Brunswick. How is the... <laughs> Would the Ducks end up being his favorite yeah, team? He's basically the only Ducks fan, probably. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Well, it's actually kind of funny because I was thinking about how, you know, hockey ended up being his first love. And my son, for some reason, he loves baseball. And his favorite team, of course, is the Detroit Tigers. But the Detroit Tigers are terrible. So somehow, a couple of years ago, he has decided his second favorite team is the Toronto Blue Jays. So... He loves the Blue Jays and follows the Blue Jays. And I we were listening to a Blue Jays broadcast on the radio the other day. And they were it was some sort of sports kind of commercial. And they said, hockey. Yeah. And then they listed other sports. And he said, why did they list hockey first? You don't list hockey first. You list football or baseball or basketball. And I said, honey, they're Canadian. <laughs> we list hockey. Hockey first. is first. Hockey yeah. is first in Canada. And he's like, "Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay." That makes more sense. <laughs> so anyway, your hockey—the little first word hockey—you just kind of uh, screams that you're Canadian and not, you know, a Californian or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And uh, so when he was when he was young, he actually wasn't able to play hockey because uh-huh. he was born with an enlarged spleen. So for a long time, they wouldn't let him play any sports because he was at risk for spleen rupture. Right. So finally, um, when he got a go ahead from his doctor, you know what? Okay, you can go. You have to have this like special brace made. So like mm-hmm. a man here from our local hospital in St. John, New Brunswick. So a, a doctor from the regional he usually made back braces. Like he made like kind of like a yeah. reverse back brace uh-huh. to like protect Braden's spleen. So he was able to join hockey. He had to wear this little brace. So of course I'm like, okay, you don't even really know how to skate. Like how about like right. first year you join, like join, like learn to skate and like get really good on your, he would have nothing to do with it. He was like, hundred percent set. He was like joining hockey, not learning to skate first. So he joined like a really, like a non, like some of the leagues, you know, are quite intense, but we joined oh, I'm sure. schoolboy league. So we just happened to have this league that was done in elementary school. So it was all grades of elementary. So K to five, all on the same team. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It, which was funny in itself because there's like really tiny people because there's a big difference <laughs> in size between a, a kindergartner and a person in grade five. So he went out to his first practice and like he could barely stand. Like literally every time he moved, he like fell. So I'm watching, I'm like having a heart attack, like panicking, like mothers do. I'm like, he's never going to come back. He's going to like, yeah. think this is awful. His dad was there. His dad plays hockey as well. So I was like, you need to like, cause there's lots of parents out on the ice helping. I'm like, you need to like, go get your skates and like go out and help and like help them. So he does. And you know, he finishes up that practice and I thought he's never going to go back. He gets right. off the ice and he's like, that was like the best day of my life. <laughs> like no care in the world that he fell like 10,000 times and could barely stand on his own two feet. Like he thought it was the best day ever. He even conned his aunt Nora into taking him skating again that same day. So like he could go out and skate. Yeah. Cause he was so excited. So he could practice that he was like finally allowed to play hockey. Oh, that is so sweet. (laughs) Oh, I feel like I got to know him a little bit. Thank you for that. You're welcome. It's one of my favorite Braden stories. Oh yeah. Those are awesome Braden stories. Do you want to go on and talk about, about a little bit about his illness and what happened? Sure. So Brayden actually, he went to school on a Friday. Life was normal. We knew nothing was wrong with him. This was in December, 2017. He went Uh to his part-time job on Saturday at McDonald's. Because how old was he at the time? He was 17 then, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he turned 18 at the beginning of 2018. Okay. So he went to work at McDonald's on Saturday on Sunday, I sent him out to get our mail, which is just across the street from our house. And he came back in, he looked completely fine, but he said, I don't feel right. Like something feels wrong. Like my breath doesn't feel right. We ended up in the ER that night. He ended up getting admitted to the pediatric ICU. And we later found out that he had hepatopulmonary syndrome, which is like, it's very confusing. It's like super rare, especially for someone his age. It's usually seen in people who have like severe liver disease, which he didn't have, but he had, when he was in the hospital, when he was seven, that's what happened to him when he had septic shock, his liver failed. Okay. So then, you know, he had 11 years where he was like completely healthy. We didn't know anything was wrong with him. 
then we're in the hospital. He gets admitted within a couple of days. We find out that they think he has this hepatopulmonary syndrome and that he'll need a liver transplant. Oh my word. One of the things that it causes, it's, it's very technically hard to explain. So I'll do my best to explain it. But And I tell you, most of the time I can help out. I cannot help out with this. <laughs> I do not know what this is at all. When we went into the ER, like once we knew it and like we ended up back into the ER a couple of times, like, no, I would have to look that up for sure. The ER doctors would have no idea. They're like, we got to call someone that's uh-huh. been seeing him because they're like, we yeah. have no idea. Like, because it's so rare when you're, um, it's like when your blood is moving from your heart to your lungs or something, it's like the, it's not getting enough oxygen. Like, so the mm-hmm. blood itself wasn't getting enough oxygen. So the reason that they took him in right away, when, when we took him in, as soon as they put that thing on your finger, which I don't know what it's called. The pulse oximeter. Mm-hmm. I got you. I got there. There. As soon as they put that on, his oxygen number was 85. So they took him in right away. Cause that's considered right. quite low. Yes. And they were giving him the oxygen support, but it wasn't bringing the number back up. So that's what they, they, they couldn't understand. They're like, well, something's wrong. Cause normally like if you have a problem, like at first they thought, oh, maybe it's like asthma, mm-hmm. but they said if it was asthma, once they put that on, then the numbers would rise, but his wouldn't rise above 85. Mm-hmm. So it was because his body actually wasn't absorbing enough oxygen into his blood. So he ended up going on oxygen then, and he needed it like 24 seven. Like we had a home oxygen machine here. He ended up being admitted to the hospital for, I think almost three weeks, maybe he, and he spent that last Christmas in the hospital, mm-hmm. but he was delighted to find out that you get extra gifts when you're in the hospital. So yes, you do. that <laughs> was like, he was excited about that. Like he had some doctors give him gifts and some of the nurses and residents. And then even just like random people in the community uh, bringing some people bringing gifts to kids in the hospital on Christmas, which was really special. So he thought that that was, you know, he was, he was always able to look on the bright side. You know, most kids would be really bummed about having to spend Christmas in the hospital. I'm an adult and I'll tell you, I took the news worse than him. I'm like, this is not fair. Like you should be allowed to come home for Christmas. (laughs) Like, why won't they let you like, I'm like having a meltdown. He's like, it's fine. And you know, he's able to like, look on the bright side and be like excited that he got like a few extra gifts for Christmas. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. the kind like that really just explains like who he is in a nutshell is that he was able to do that. Just attitude his brightness. Yeah. Just his attitude. So once he came home, like I said, like for the majority of the time, like he looked pretty fine. Like if he was sitting, he could barely stand though, without like, even just like brushing his teeth, like his auction numbers would go down into the seventies. Oh, wow. Like mm-hmm. he would, he couldn't shower. Cause like standing in the shower would be too long. Like his numbers would like plummet. Like, so he'd have to bath. You have to get out of the bath, like sit on the toilet to catch his breath because like his numbers would be so low. Like he couldn't dry his hair. Cause that would like plummet his numbers, literally drying his hair. But again, like he would like look on the bright side of, I don't have to go to school. Like I don't have to work my part-time job. I don't have to do any chores. Like I get to play my beloved video games all day long. And like, he would just still wake up with a smile on his face every day. Mm-hmm. Well, it's beautiful to have that attitude for sure. So he passed almost five months exactly from that first day we were in the hospital. Wow. So was he on a transplant list then? Yes, he was on the transplant list. They called us and they told us to expect to be on the transplant list for a year and a half to two years. So we like 
I mean, it wasn't even on our radar thinking that it was coming. And then like one week later from the day that they listed him and told us that it was going to be a year and a half to two years, they called us and they were like, we have a perfect match. Like he's being bumped because the match was so perfect. Wow. So like one week later, we got the call. Obviously the next day he got surgery and he passed the next day after that. So for him, the surgery was like more risky. Like the, I mean, liver transplant surgery is always risky, but for him where he required full oxygen support, like that puts you at a higher risk. He also had what they called a frozen abdominal. So like, it's like scar tissue on the inside of your stomach. So that was caused by the illness that he had when he was seven, he had all of this internal scar tissue that made everything like they called it portal hypertension. So everything was like really puffy and swollen. And then he also had a low blood clotting time. Mm -hmm. So when they did surgery, and that's because the liver just wasn't working, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when they did surgery, they were not able to ever get the bleeding under control after the, he was in surgery like all day. And then they decided that they were going to like, let him rest overnight. Surgery wasn't even finished. And then they were going to wait till morning to take him back and do surgery, like finish his surgery they ended up taking him back into surgery like four times. And then they ended up doing their last attempt right inside the ICU. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they said that there's like nothing left that they could do for him. What a traumatic couple of days for you, though, because, you know, you hear that, wow, he's got a liver and I'm sure you're flying high at that point. But scared, but still kind of flying high, right? Because you think, okay, this is it. This is the second chance at life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially too, like in our experience, like the first life-threatening illness that he had, like they told us numerous times that he was like, he was probably not going to make it right when he was Mm -hmm. seven. They told us so many times and they had listed him for transplant surgery back then when he was seven years old, they listed him for a liver transplant too. Yep. His Uh liver failed. So he had septic shock. He went into his liver failed. His lungs almost failed. Like they were like, we cannot like the, is it called a respirator? Like that can't go any higher. And he's still struggling to breathe. Mm -hmm. He also had kidney dialysis and had a stroke. Wow. Wow. So he was in really rough. So was that just from an illness, this septic shock? Yeah. So he got like a really, uh, like a rare blood infection, which Uh they said that for some people, like if I would have got it or someone else who was healthy, but he had these underlying health issues. He was born with Mm -hmm. a portal vein thrombosis. So just a blocked artery in his portal vein and an enlarged spleen. Mm -hmm. So he's always like really underweight as a child. Yeah. Really, really thin. And then again, the enlarged spleen. So his enlarged spleen made him like naturally low in platelets. So like whenever he went for surgery, they always had to give him like platelets in advance. Uh, So he came with some other issues and things that made that blood infection like worse than maybe the average person would have had it. I see. So like we were, I took him into the hospital here in um, New Brunswick. We didn't even spend that full night in the hospital. And they were like, they flew us to Halifax and we were in Halifax for maybe two nights and they flew us to Toronto. Mm -hmm. And the whole time they were telling us, you need to prepare yourself like I mean, not that you can prepare yourself, so I don't know why they say that, but... Well, because people think you can. 
yeah, he might not make it. Like, you know, he might not make it, which they tell me right before, like, I have to like leave him and fly commercially. And he has to fly in the New Brunswick Medicare plane, which is like the crummiest plane ever. Like it's super small and really, really slow. Oh my! So like I was not even allowed to fly with him because the extra weight of one person literally slows the. I flew in that with him when we went from St. John to Halifax and they literally had to like know my weight in order to like for me to be able to be on that flight. Oh my goodness. Like they had to know how much I weighed. So it's not like a super fast plane. So yeah, that, that. They listed him when we were in Toronto, they put him on the transplant list in the middle of the night. But by the morning, when we came back in, in the morning, they were like, we took him off the list because he's too sick to even go for transplant. So they, wow. they took him off the list. And then like about three weeks later, they were like, we don't even think he needs this anymore. And like the transplant surgeon there who was supposed to originally do his surgery said that he thought it was miraculous. Like he said, there's no explanation as to why he's, he just got better. And then he just stayed good. He just stayed good. Yeah. Going into this surgery, mm-hmm. we thought, you know what I mean? Like we were scared. Right. But right. our experience in our past told us like, he's going to make it like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's already a living miracle, right? Like he's going to get through this too. So it came as like a really big shock for us for sure. Yeah, I bet so. I bet so. Talk about that a little bit. Talk about that time during and after those those days a little bit. During the, the loss itself? Yeah. And just that, I would say that journey of you were excited and thinking and then, you know, I'm sure they came to you at some point during the surgery, like things aren't going well, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he's in surgery all day. We're waiting in the little room that they let you wait in. They actually have a nurse that comes in periodically and like gives you updates. So I'm not sure like why, but they, she was actually updating us all day, telling us things were going well. Okay. So we're going through the day being told that things are going well. So we're waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, they then tell us like we can move from this one room up to the room that's right outside the ICU where he'll eventually be wheeled into. And we're waiting for the doctor to come and talk to us. And then that's when like after we've been waiting all day and hearing that things are going well, he came in and said things did not go well. So it was like a really wow. huge shock for us. We obviously just stayed there and we waited like we, you know, we saw him and then mm-hmm. he ended up being back in surgery like multiple times. He never did wake up from the morning before when they wheeled him off to surgery in the afternoon that day in the early afternoon, they like called us all in. We had quite a few people there, myself, my husband, his dad, his stepmom. My mom flew in from Ontario. My husband's parents were there. Like, so we were all there, like kind of, you know, rallying around him. But so they called us all in the conference room, had us like sit down. And then that's when they came in and they just said like straight out, like they did not sugarcoat anything. They did not ease into it. They looked Mm -hmm. at us and with total certainty, they told us that he was going to die. Oh my word. Yeah. That's such a shock then, isn't it? It was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a real shock because, you know, we just had that expectation that he'll get through this too. Yeah, yeah. So then did you get to spend some time with him? After that? We did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we sat with him. That's a little bit of a blessing, isn't it to be able to do that? It's it is it is actually like, when I think about or hear about people like who lost someone suddenly and like, 
couldn't be there with them, you know, whether it was a car accident or something else, just where they couldn't be there. I think like that would be very, very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I just, that's a good thing about him not dying, like in the operating room without you there. So. Yeah. And another thing too, like, I think that like for kids that, for kids that have to be told that they're terminal, like, you know what I mean? Like he was never told that, right? Like he always had hope. Right. Like, I just like that, that brings warmth to my heart, right? Like knowing that he always had that hope. Well, and then he probably went to sleep a little excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Thinking like things are going to turn around. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't you talk about your grief journey? Because there are a couple different things that you have done really in your grief. And first of all, I want to talk about the Braden Foundation that you started. So do you want to talk about that a little? Absolutely. I knew like almost immediately that I needed to do something that like, Mm -hmm. for me, like it was not an option. Like I had to do something. I wasn't really sure what we were going to do. And in fact, we started with a completely different idea Okay, and it morphed into the Braden foundation. The other idea didn't work out, but this one was so much better. And when I, when it birthed into life, like I knew it in my heart. So I met up with like a, a now friend of mine and just asked her for help, like brainstorming ideas. She does mm-hmm. marketing and she helps other like entrepreneurs. So, and I had previously been doing a course with her for a completely different business that I was going to start, but I reached out and I was just like, I just need your help, like coming up with like an idea for what the Braden foundation is going to do. Cause like, right. I'm like, we have a foundation, but I have no idea what it's going to do. So her and I like batted around like a bunch of different ideas. Like they were like, meh, meh, like nothing like really felt right. And then she just like, she asked me what would have brought Braden a little bit more joy in his final months? Like what would have made him happy? And then like, mm-hmm right away it came to me I was like well he was your typical teenager he loved electronics video games he loved to spend the money (laughs) he wasn't working so I was like if someone would have either come in and he was spending all of his time in his room because he was hooked up to that oxygen machine right and like had a hard time like getting around and stuff Mm -hmm. if someone would have either came in and like decked out his room with all like the coolest stuff and yeah best video games or if they would like take him on a shopping spree and like, just let him buy a bunch of like video games or electronics. I was like, those are the two things. So that is exactly what we do. Um, And it was born from like what we thought would have brought Brayden joy. Um, Mm -hmm. We do either room makeovers or shopping sprees for kids in New Brunswick who have severe life-threatening or high risk illnesses. And then in, so we launched that, I started working on plans for that the following month after he passed. Within five months, like we did our first, we had a board of 12 people. We did our very first happy heart. That's what we call it. A happy heart room makeover. And we did a gala like the month later. And then in 2019, we actually added a parent support group. So we have a support group led by a qualified counselor who in the support group is for parents of children with life-threatening illnesses right? so that they can be connected and supported too. Because when I started talking with families, uh, when I was reaching out to them to let them know like, Hey, we approved your child's application and like, they're going to get to, you know, have their makeover or their shopping sprees. I noticed that they would like talk to me for so long. Right. I'd be on the phone with them, like sometimes an hour or more. Mm-hmm because they could just connect with me because they knew that I personally felt like it was because they knew that I understood them. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? I understood their struggles. And I think that so many people with children 
that have life-threatening illnesses, they feel so isolated and like not understood by the people that are around them. So we all start offering that. So that's completely free to anyone in our area. Um, They meet monthly. The women that go, I know they love it. I don't participate in those meetings because I want it to be just for those women that are going through it right now. Right. So that's completely led by one of my dear friends who's also on our board and is a counselor. So she does that completely by volunteer and the ladies really support one another too. So it's been really nice to watch. Just recently, one of our newer members was needing some sort of piece of medical medical equipment, a pump mm-hmm. of some sort. I'm not really sure what that pump does, but was just feeling kind of stressed because some of that stuff, even like with the coverage, you still have like a big chunk of out of pocket. And when you have a sick child, people don't think about all the additional expenses that you have, right? You're often missing work. You're often here in New Brunswick. Anyways, you're often traveling to another province to, to go to the children's hospital. So there's a lot of these extra expenses. And one of the other members literally gave her one that she was like, Oh, we no longer need it. Like you can have this. And that was just like, so oh wow, nice to see. I got like, like the nicest message from her being like, this is because of you. And I'm like, no, it's because like those ladies are there to support one another and they, they care and they understand. So they, they want to help too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just beautiful that you could yeah. do that. And our logo is really special too. I wish I had something in my room. Oh, I do. I'm going to grab it. It's just a sign that I had for when we had this at an event. So the Braden uh-huh. in our logo, this is actually his handwriting. Oh, this was taken from the last Mother's Day card that he wrote me, like where he wrote love Brayden. Oh, that's so beautiful. And that was just like three days before he passed away. Oh, my word. That does make it so much more special, doesn't it? So special. His um, it's funny. His grandfather was making a sign for us. He was making a sign for us for some photos and stuff that we were going to do. Um, and he said, I'm trying to match up the font. He's like, I'm trying to match up the font that you used for Braden's name. And I can't find that font anywhere. It's like, he's using these things to scan it, to tell him what the font is. And I'm like, that's Braden's handwriting. That's Braden font. That That is his personal font. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, that's his personal font. He had 10 sketch fonts. So you won't find that anywhere. It was his own special font. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh yeah. I found that that just made it so much more special that was his handwriting. Oh yeah. And I love how you have started this organization for parents whose children are critically ill. I think that's just a beautiful thing. So then separate from the Braden Foundation, you've done things to help support bereaved parents as well. So why don't you talk about that and what you do there? And I do think it's nice that it's totally separate. I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's completely separate because, and that's the same reason like, why I don't go to the support group meetings with the foundation, because like, like I would need different support. You know what I mean? Like that's not the same. Like you don't want to have that all together. Like parent who's dealing with a sick child with a parent who lost a sick child is completely different. Right. I know. And it's a little bit hard. I think sometimes I think about me as just doing general pediatrics. Sometimes I feel like I don't want all my patients to know that I have a child who is dead because for some people, that's going to make things feel kind of worse, right? Looking at someone like, that's you are the, who I do not want to be right now. So yeah. that's why I think it's nice to have those things separate 
too. I mean, for some people, obviously, they feel totally comfortable talking to you knowing that you get it. But for others, it might be like, ooh, I don't think I really feel comfortable yeah. in that yet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was kind of like on my own, like little personal growth journey before Braden got sick. I started doing different things, like kind of woke up one day and was just like kind of fed up with like always having the same goals year after year, but never really making progress, like always wanting to do things, but like never making them a priority. So I was kind of on this little bit. So I started like sharing mostly like inspirational stuff on social media. I started like a a page where I mostly share other people's stuff, but not write my own original stuff. Or I'd share like a quote and then like add a couple of my own sentences or something, but very like surface, surface level. And then when Braden got sick, I started sharing a little bit about his journey and like how he was inspiring me. Mm -hmm. So people were like, kind of like cheering him on and seeing him go through this journey. And honestly, after losing him, I kept sharing. So I kind of like shared my whole I mean, not my whole, but I shared a lot of my grief journey um, Mm -hmm. with others, like some of the like deep, deep feelings I was having, I kept sharing them. And then I naturally just started meeting more bereaved women. I started joining communities for bereaved moms. And I found that my heart hurt a little bit more when I met so many grieving women that it seemed like they felt like their lives were over and that they weren't, they weren't able to get beyond that. Mm -hmm. You know, I started doing all these things. One of the things that I did was I started this bravery project because I made a promise to Brayden at his funeral during my eulogy that I would live my life as bravely as he lived his. So that kind of pushed me to start doing all of these things in the, in the like worst moments of the grief. Right. I started you know, sharing more. I started the Braden Foundation. I started like speaking about Braden and doing all these things, other things that I've always wanted to do, but never really had the like courage or never prioritized in life. And, you know, along that journey, I really discovered and like it kind of just solidified in me, like how powerful we all are, you know, how much control we owe, we have over ourselves and our lives over, you know, how grief shapes us, who we become as a result of it. Like that is really like, we have so much power over that. But I just, I saw so many people that, that weren't able to recognize that they had that power. Just like, it just like broke my heart a little more. So I just, I became really passionate about just sharing my journey, sharing my, I call it my healing journey. Because I think personally, like, just like grief is a journey, I think healing is a journey too. It's not passive. Like it's something that we have to choose and we have to choose it again and again and again. And then we have to practice healing is how I like to say it. So we have to find things that help us feel better, that help us bring joy into our lives. We have to be really purposeful about finding joy. It really is so easy to like, let the grief take over, let the darkness take over to see your life as over. And I just want to help more people step out of that darkness because it just like breaks my heart when I see posts in some of these groups where women are talking about like wanting to die, wanting to die. Like that's that's not okay. Like some people say that there is no wrong way to grieve. And I just think 
that's not true. Like if you spend the rest of your life wanting to die, I personally think that's the wrong way to grieve because Mm -hmm. even though our lives are different than we ever imagined, they are not what we expected. There can still be meaning. There can still be beauty. There can still be joy alongside that grief and that heartache. I love what you talked about back, just stepping back a little bit about having power, because I think a lot of grieving parents feel absolutely like they're just a victim and they're drowning. And it's just this, you know, like they're in an ocean and the waves are big and they're just throwing them around and they have no control. So that was a unique perspective that you have, I think. And I think I got that perspective one from like years of reading all of the personal development. I actually, it's crazy to think about, but I actually read my very first personal development book in Braden's hospital room in Toronto when he miraculously survived his first life-threatening illness. Mm -hmm. And I say that that book, it's not by any means the best personal development book. It was the secret, but it was like, I say my gateway drug into just being really interested in that and like reading books and going to seminar and like learning these things that I used to say I was a self-help junkie because I like took it all in, took it all in, but I felt like I was never actually applying it. Mm -hmm. But then it was like kind of something that really helped me through, you know, 11 years later, it's something that like helped me through that loss. And that promise that I made to Braden at his funeral in front of my friends and family and acquaintances to live my life as bravely as his, that became a huge piece of my healing, a huge piece of, you know, the foundation of me getting to where I am because I made this promise. I kept thinking about it. And then I was like, I decided that I would start this 100 Brave Things project where I purposefully tried to do things that I considered brave, some big, some small, in doing that, in pursuing this, you know, brave like Braden, that's the hashtag that we use. Mm-hmm. In pursuing that, that's where I like really started to, to see like, we do have this power. We can choose how grief is going to shape us and who we are going to become and how we are going to show up in the world. And I just remind myself every single day that I don't want to waste what was taken from him. And when he looks down from heaven, I want him to be like, the proudest angel in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm listening to you talk. I think of the word empowered. I feel like you are just such an empowered woman. And that does not match very commonly with grieving mother, a grieving mother and empowerment. I I just really want to compliment you on that. It's amazing to me. No, he's my inspiration. That's what you call on yourself on social media, right? Yeah, Tiffany Agnew Inspires. Tiffany Agnew Inspires. So yeah, I invite all of you to follow her on social media. I, I know I am planning to. I'm excited about that uh, because it is just inspirational to see someone feel empowered and because it's just so rare, I think, yeah. in the grieving parent community. Yeah. One of the things that I, I've heard most often since losing Brayden, becoming a bereaved mom is three words. You're so strong. Yes. But I want to remind people that I don't have superhuman strength. I am no different 
from any other grieving mom that's listening to this episode, that strength that I have, they have it too. And it's available to them and they can step fully into that power at any time that they choose. Mm -hmm. There's nothing special about me. It's within us all. Well, and I think we all hear that. I hear that all the time. I hear you're so strong. And I, I actually, I really hate it. I mean, it's like, in some ways, I think you're so strong ends up setting setting you apart. It sets you apart from the person who just told you. It's like, you're so strong, so I don't really need to be there for you because you can totally handle this on yeah. your own. So I don't love that because I feel like we are better in community. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we're, we are so much better in community and we get strength from each other. And whether it's your friends and family who aren't bereaved or other bereaved people, but we strengthen each other. And so when you say a statement like you're so strong, I just don't love it because it singles you out. And it makes it seem like I have something different that other people don't have. Yes, but it's within us all, right? It's within us all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's within us all. And it and it just separates us, I think, too much. It also kind of gives people, it kind of makes it harder for people to talk about when they are struggling because like everyone's telling yep. them they're strong. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. hey, I'm falling apart over here. But you don't want to tell them because they're telling you constantly that you're so strong. I'm having a bad day. I can't tell you. But like mm-hmm. my least, least, least favorite thing that like, makes me want to like scream from the rooftops. Um, um, it's probably not going to be what you're, what you're expecting, but I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie Mean Girls. Um, <laughs> super I old, not, no. but anyways, <laughs> the scene from the Mean Girls, this girl is like, she's mad at this other girl. They're like high school girls and they're like, yeah. they're like angry with each other, like both liking the same boy. So this one girl's like envisioning herself like a wild animal, like leaping over the table and like strangling the other girl. This is what comes to mind when people say this to me <laughs> or when I hear it said at all. And that's, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. I literally think that that's yeah. like, like the worst thing that you can say to a grieving person, because then mm-hmm. To me, you're saying so many things like you're saying that your grief would be worse than mine, that you'd be in more pain, that you wouldn't be able to be out of bed. But clearly I'm doing okay because I'm getting out of bed. It's judgmental. It's judgmental. It's really judgmental. Right. And it's like telling me that my life is now so awful that I shouldn't be able to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And if you are able to get out of bed, you must be doing something kind of wrong because I yeah. certainly wouldn't be able to do that. Because I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. Like I've even told right. people that like it's the most annoying and worst thing that you can say. And they're just like, oh, it's just so true, though. Like I can't help it. I just like I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. And like one, like you don't know what you would or wouldn't do. And you don't have a choice. I can't just lay in bed and like die, you know, and like, yeah. when they see me at the store, like I feel like people started saying this early, very early on, like that might've been the only thing that I did that day was go to the store to get eggs. You know what I mean? And like, Mm -hmm. you're telling me that you wouldn't be able to get out of bed. It just like frustrates me to no end. I have like tons of posts about just that one saying, like telling people to not (laughs) say it. I'm actually like in, I'm taking a speaking certification right now and in the process of writing up my script. And that is literally the very first line of my script. Uh Uh-huh. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. That's what people started telling me. That's the first line of my speech that I'm working on. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is telling you that you're not doing something right in their mind. Well, and that. And that's not what they mean. What they mean is, is that you're amazing and strong and wonderful. And I couldn't ever be that good. That's what they mean. But it's not what it really comes across as. And I think that they're also telling you that your life is over, that you're, yeah. that you should, you don't have any reasons to get out of bed. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, I know that obviously when we, when we lose a child, we sometimes feel like we don't have any reasons to get, go on, but we don't need other people to tell us that we don't have reasons to go on. Like, you know, we already think that enough on our own. We don't need reaffirming that identity that our lives are over and that we should just stay in bed. You are so right. There are so many things I feel like I can tell myself, but if other people tell me, it's terrible. Yeah, like we don't need other people adding to that, right? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Say, I want to hear a few of those brave things that you said, that you did some brave things. So like I said, they started off like some are small, some are big. Uh So one was holding a lizard on my head. Okay. Something very, very small. Did that when I was away in the Dominican. I am actually the kind of person like for most of my adult life, I actually despised all creatures, like all pets, like even dogs and cats, like until I met my now husband and he had like the world's two best dogs and they like wore me down and stole, stole my heart. So like, this was kind of really out of my comfort zone to let this guy put a lizard on my head. Okay. So like I said, they're all different sizes. I started doing videos on social media. That was so uncomfortable for me to speak in front of other people, to put myself out there. And like, you know, you feel like an imposter. Like, do I have anything important to say? Like, who am I to do this? Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. Then I started. Totally get that. I can tell you. Yeah. Then I started doing public speaking, like on purpose. I used to be so afraid of public speaking that when I went to university, like in my early twenties, that the first day of a class, I would get the syllabus and quickly scan it. And if there was a requirement of a big speech, because they tell you all the breakdown in your syllabus, right? I was leaving. I'm out the door. I'm not even staying for that class because I'm dropping it. Because that's how afraid of public speaking I was. Oh, wow. Even in college, like years later in my late 20s, I went to college where like, you know, classes, our college here, classes are like all day. So, and they're with the same class. So like, there's only like 17, 18 people in my class and I'm spending two years with them. So in second year, we had to start doing speeches in our communications class. I would be like sick to my stomach for like three days leading up to like a two minute talk that I would have to do in front of my classmates that I've known for a year and a half now. Like that's how afraid of public speaking I was. It literally made, even though, which is so random, I did always dream. As soon as I discovered that motivational speaking was a, like a thing and that people had it uh-huh. like as a job, I wanted to do it, but kind of felt like a pipe dream because I mean, I was terrified to speak in public. So that was one of them. Well, look what Brayden taught you. Yeah. I started speaking in public. I did a duathlon. I did. Okay. Past winter, I did a polar dip. (laughs) One of the craziest ones that, or the craziest one that I have done to date, I rappelled off a building. So, oh my word. They have, these are all sound very crazy to me. I'm like terrified of heights, like so terrified of heights that there was this an event it's called over the edge. So you have to raise a thousand dollars for charity in order to rappel off a building. Not sure why I wanted to do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I got up there. That seems a little backwards, actually. Yeah, right. They should be mm-hmm. paying me a thousand dollars. Absolutely, that's it. what I'm thinking. And it's going to have to be way more than a thousand bucks for me. Mm-hmm. I have to say. Except for one, yeah. I don't think I ever want to do that again. Like I did it. I got the T-shirt. Yeah. Don't need to go back. Don't need to. Okay. No need to do it again. All right. Uh, when I got up on the roof, because you have to like get literally get to the roof and stand backwards with your feet edged over the edge and then like get yourself in a position so that you're like this, so that your legs are straight out in front of you, right? But you're hanging yeah. over the building. And I'm telling you, I, I dropped a lot of F-bombs and I'm not normally that <laughs> kind of a, a person like that, like swears a lot. There's a lot of swearing. And I was like filled with so much regret. Like, why did I sign up for this? Why, why, why? I'm like asking them. I'm like, I keep thinking though, Brayden had got a really good laugh at that. Oh, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Brayden's watching you from heaven somewhere. He is thinking this yeah. is hilarious. I'll, yeah. I'll have to send you a photo from when I did the polar dip this past winter because a friend of mine came to take some photos. And like, so there's like a photo uh-huh. of me walking back on the, along the beach after being in the water. And it was like, it was so much colder than I could have anticipated in my mind. Yeah. It, it was so cold that it immediately hurt. Like it pained. Like, so as I'm like walking back to like, get to my clothes and my towel and like warmth, my house coat, my feet pained as I was walking through the sands. But so she snapped a picture of me. And if you look at the picture, it looks like there's a rainbow above me. Yeah, so I'm like, Brayden was there that day. No, he was. Brayden was there. there. I think Brayden's watching you through all of this, yeah. actually. Absolutely. And really, I think helping you empower yourself mm-hmm. in many ways, don't you think? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so you have done some different things in community. I know you were going to do an event for Bereave Mother's Day and ended up having to be postponed just because of different circumstances with one of the co-presenters. But, you know, if people follow you on social media, I think they'll be able to see that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you're doing some virtual events, so you don't have to be in New Brunswick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When we do get this event back on, you don't have to be in New Brunswick. It's all going to be done online. Yeah. Well, that's just beautiful. And people will have the option like so they can join in on this like on Zoom or we're also going to stream it into a private Facebook group too for I know there's some people that are a little bit more timid of Zoom and they don't like like see themselves on video so we're going to stream it into there as well. Very good. Very good. So again, which social media platforms are you on and how can people maybe see a website and things like that? Just give us that. So they can follow me on social media at Tiffany Agnew Inspires on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And they can follow the Braden Foundation on Facebook and Instagram. And my website is tiffanyagnew.com. And the Braden Foundation is just the bradenfoundation.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. If anyone in New Brunswick listens and they know anyone with a child with a life-threatening illness, they can head to our website and apply. You can apply yourself for your own child or if you know of a child that is sick you can apply on their behalf as well oh that's just beautiful so how many have you been able to to, rooms and shopping sprees have you been able to do so we've done recently did our 17th applicant oh very 
good. Because it's not really been going on that long, and especially with the pandemic and everything like that. So yes, the pandemic definitely slowed us down for a while. We obviously weren't able to take kids with life threatening illnesses out on shopping sprees into the germy COVID world, because these are kids that, you know, would be those people that would be at higher risk and, you know, low immunities Mm -hmm. and stuff. So it really did slow us down. But we did our 17th application. We did room makeover for the sweetest little girl named Ellie. And she had a, we did a seven foot. I didn't do it. Cause I don't have this kind of talent, but we had two <laughs> amazing local artists volunteer and they painted a seven foot mural in her room. So she has like a certain type of blindness that Mm -hmm. when things are really big, it's easier for her to see. And if they have like reflectiveness in them, like, uh, so we got them to put glitter in it because it makes it easier for her to see. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. So that was really special. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Tiffany. I look forward to seeing more of your brave exploits and sharing with other bereaved parents. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.